You're listening to the Rural Advancement Podcast. Rural Advancement provides resources to empower, equip, and encourage rural pastors and churches. Join our community by visiting us at ruraladvancement.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Rural Advancement. We are so excited that you tuned in. I'm your host, Joe Epley, and hopefully, if you're tuning in, you are a rural pastor or leader or volunteer who is looking to be equipped and empowered to serve God in your small town or in your out-of-the-way place. We are all about God doing His work in these awesome rural churches, and we are so glad that you joined us today. We are having a conversation about rural discipleship, and we're talking about what it looks like to get people from point A to point B, to take them from outsiders to insiders, especially in a small town. Uh, to do that, we're bringing you voices who have worked within rural contexts, who have principles that apply to rural contexts, and today is no different. Today, we are joined by a personal friend of mine. His name is Neil Aravsky. Neil, how are you doing? Great. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. Um, and I'm going to give a little bit of background about Neil and let him tell his own story. But the reason I brought Neil on today is he uh, has been working on a master's thesis at Trinity Bible College the last several years. During this time, he's had the privilege to do ministry, but his thesis is all about discipleship and really strongly talks about community, authenticity, transparency, all these awesome principles that I just think hit right at home in a rural church. And so I'm going to let him maybe give us a little bit of background on his ministry context and how that inspired your thesis. So Neil, tell us a little bit about that, man. Yeah, I attended as a student and worked at Trinity Bible College in graduate school for the last 10 years. I graduated with my bachelor's in 2015 and worked as a student life administrative assistant for two years. And then I worked as a men's resident director for three years from 2019 to 2022 and finished my thesis in uh, 2022. And working through all of that, living in Ellendale for the last 10 years, that has given me a lot of opportunity to be in a rural community. Ellendale is about 1,200 people and Trinity is a very small campus of just a couple hundred. So I've had a lot of time and opportunity working in rural community. And my entire time at Trinity fed my desire to learn more about the spiritual formation of emerging adults. I watched a lot of amazing young people be formed into incredible leaders, and I saw a lot of things done right and a lot done wrong. And I wanted to dive into what, into qualifying what truly contributes positively to spiritual growth and perhaps anal analyzing what is commonly thought to help spiritual growth that ends up actually hindering it. By the time I landed on this topic for my thesis, I was well into my time as resident director and it was pretty much my sole job to facilitate the spiritual growth of students on campus. I had the privilege of growing alongside some students who I know will be the future of the church and some were some of the most brightest, wisest, selfless, godly people I've ever met and students that I know will change the world. So as I grew with them and was given place to speak into their lives, I thought what could be more important to research than the spiritual formation of these people. So in short, the answer to what inspired my thesis was my students. Awesome. Well, that's really cool. And obviously in the rural church, that's a huge need. How do we take, uh, again, not just outsiders to insiders, but how do we keep generations going? You know, often in rural churches, there's a fear of uh, if we don't reach the next generation, we lose them. And so um, it's super cool, that context, because even as we talk discipleship that it could apply to all ages, I really think it empowers young people. So maybe uh, diving into this, there's a quote you share in your paper that says most godly character traits can only be developed through adversity. 
And I thought that was such a powerful quote. I know that uh, I, if I remember right, it was not something you originated, something that came from somebody else, but it's still a super cool concept and a really shocking one because I think that uh, we shy away from adversity. So can you dive into the importance of adversity in our experience of discipleship? Yeah, uh, that is a quote from a book by Bridges, Trust in God Even When Life Hurts, which is a book all about like hurt. And I don't know that I necessarily agree that those godly characters can only be developed through adversity, but uh, it is still an important notion that this adversity breeds good things if we let it breeds these godly characteristics. And the simplest way to answer that, I would say, is that we're most Christ-like when we suffer like Christ. As we echo the sacrifice of the crucifixion, the redemption and resurrection and restoration that Christ won for us is echoed in the lives of those we sacrifice for. And there's a lot of layers to this, starting with Jesus's statement in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus's proclamation here is that sacrifice, which demands adversity, is the greatest act of love. Beyond that, we're broken people. We're riddled with corruption and sin and lies from the world. And the world has seeped into cracks all over our hearts and minds. And as we're broken by adversity, we can find that corruption and root it out. It's only through being broken that we can be made whole. That quote you referenced is quickly followed by another from Henry Nouwen. To fully grieve is to allow your losses to tear apart feelings of false security and safety and lead you to the painful truth of your brokenness and dependence upon God alone. In a perfect world, we wouldn't have this corruption inside of us that needs to be rooted out, and we wouldn't need hurt and loss to tear down our walls that we put up to keep God and others out. But we don't live in a perfect world and that adversity may or may not be the only key, but it's at least a key to unlocking the things in our lives that need to be rooted out into us actually living and dying like Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that's such powerful stuff because when I think of the Royal Church from the pastor to the congregants, there is a lot of adversity, right? There's a lot of hardship and, and this goes with anybody's lives, but especially in a small town, uh, sometimes those losses are acute and they're felt by the whole community. And so pastoring and seeing adversity as a form of discipleship, I think is huge for a rural leader. And I would hope that anyone listening would would maybe reframe to, to begin to reframe and say, hey, not just what adversity am I experiencing, but how is God actually going to use this in this fallen world to tear down these walls, to help us recognize where we're at and build us back better? Well, hey, let's look at another question. Uh, you talk in your paper about mentorship, right? And and the fact that mentorship seems, I mean, it's almost paradoxical, at least if, if I read your paper, right, to say that discipleship can happen without mentorship or vice versa. And so maybe elaborate on that a little bit. How, how can one form a mentorship culture? Yeah, uh, mentorship is crucial. To give a picture, a picture of how much this came up in my research, I borrowed quite a few books from my friend Dave Jacob. And he had written notes to himself in the margin. And there were several books where almost every page, sometimes multiple times a page, he'd written something on the margin, something like need for mentors or mentors or mentors are important. That came up in almost all these books and all the time. Beyond that, data from the National Study of Youth and Religion and other literature shows that emerging adults desperately long for mentorship. However, What they need in mentorship and what potential mentors today think is mentorship might be very different pictures. Emerging adults most of the time don't need someone to talk at them more. They get that enough, even if the mentor has good things to say. More than anything else, they need someone to walk with them, not to walk in front of them and pull them along, not to walk behind them and push them along, but to walk with them, to stand beside them, hold their hand and walk through everything they go through with them. This means first and foremost, through looking at mentoring and discipling young people, listen to young people, 
one of the consistent scriptural commands that sticks out to me over all the Old and New Testament is do not be wise in your own eyes. If you have to tell a young person that they should listen to you or that you have the wisdom or life experience to merit listening to you, you've already lost them. Being wise in your own eyes has countless clear condemnations and negative repercussions listed in scripture, and that will never help develop mentorship. The solution to that is always keeping your heart, mind, and ears open to the young people in your church. So just listen to them. Give them space to share about their life, their hurts, their celebrations, to just experience life with them, to go to their games and their recitals, to be with them when they cry, to celebrate when they achieve. One thing that came out in research is that today's young people tend to want to make a difference in the world, but they commonly don't believe they can make a difference in the world. Older generations often cite young people today as lazy or not driven, and these studies found that if there is any lack of motivation, it's not because they don't care, it's not because they like don't want to make a difference in the world. It's because they, they don't believe that they can make a difference. They believe that nothing they do will matter. So if you want to raise up young people to actually do things and make a difference, a major thing one can do to form that mentorship culture is to, is to instill value in young people. Show them that what they do actually matters. Give them opportunities to actually make a difference. Oh, wow. One of the most important things that came out of my thesis is the understanding of how spiritual formation is actualized. I concluded that spiritual formation begins on the inside, perhaps in private moments with God or self-reflection from a teaching. However, it's actualized in our lives in the interaction of being or forming and being formed. So that interaction with other spirit-filled believers of allowing the Holy Spirit to give and take, come and go in between to build each other up, not just one way, but two ways, is how that spiritual formation is actualized as it comes out of us. So with these students, allow them to form you and form them. Be open to the Holy Spirit within them forming you and the Holy Spirit within you forming them. And I, I can attest to that personally. I love to learn. I learned a tremendous amount from my undergraduate and graduate studies at Trinity, and I'm very thankful for them. But uh, I can attest that I learned far more from my students as an RD than I did in all of my undergraduate and graduate studies. Sitting and listening to students as I mentored them is really, I just sat and listened to them. I learned so much more from that. And I found that as I sat and I listened, I earned the place to be able to speak into their lives. As I listened to them, they became of their own accord, willing to and wanted to listen to what I had to say. And my experience as young people with this is that they usually know the right answer and they don't need someone to tell it to them. They just need help to get themselves there. And they'll own it so much more if they're driving the car that gets them there. And then as far as actually speaking and not just listening and asking questions, I have to emphasize the phrase walking through life with them. Good mentorship is vulnerable mentorship. If you want them to open up to you, open up to them. Actually share what's going on in your life. Genuinely speak care and wisdom from them, and you might be surprised what they have to offer. Then beyond that, they'll reciprocate and seek care and wisdom from you. So to summarize, lead with questions, listen well, actually engage with young people and walk through life with them. Lead in vulnerability and allow them to form you as well as be formed by you. Awesome. Yeah. And and what a place in the royal church, because again, uh, intergenerational ministry is often all we have. There's never enough of one demographic of people in one place to say, well, I'm only going to focus on the young people in my church, or I'm only going to focus on the old people. It's like, man, we got to we gotta learn to listen and, and be listened to and, and to form and be formed. And I really love that perspective. Diving further into your thesis here, I want you to maybe talk about the importance of community, right? So in a church setting, what does authentic community look like? Maybe give us two or three principles that you feel kind of mark that. Because again, as pastors, that's what we're trying to create. As leaders, that's what we're trying to help foster. 
And yet I know some of your research definitely touched on that. So what does authentic community look like? Yeah, let me start with scripture. So John 13, 34 through 35 says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Two chapters later, Jesus also says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my, my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then another two chapters later, Jesus is praying for the disciples. And he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And in 1 John 4, 12, it says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If we love one another, God abides in us. All of that paints a pretty powerful picture of the intensity that scripture describes our relationships and the way that we're supposed to care for one another and what biblical community actually looks like. And the simplest answer I can give to that is family, not in the warped way our world understands family, but in a biblical sense. Scripture uses a lot of familial language to express the way we are to relate to one another. Romans 12 is a great example of that. We've kind of morphed this into a cliche idea that we cringe at brother so-and-so and we giggle about it but the idea of seeing the church as one family with one father was revolutionary to the early church and this has been abused and corrupted for a long time but the power of a healthy heavenly family is still scriptural and is foundational to authentic community and as i researched for my thesis i came across all these powerful descriptions and these books on spiritual formation of the kind of community needed for spiritual formation. My thesis was on spiritual formation. That was the, the question was, what is needed for spiritual formation? But the answer that kept coming out above everything else was community. As I read book after book, I found these intense descriptions of intimate community. I began to do my own biblical research alongside the books I was reading, and my heart began to break as I saw how different the church culture of America is today from the descriptions I read. What I read described true, authentic, intimate family, but what I see is it so afraid of the world and what the world thinks that we've walled ourselves off, not just from the world, but from each other. Authentic community has to tear down those walls and truly let each other in, providing the original ministry model that Jesus gave, referenced to earlier. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. And another idea that uh, came up as I pursued this topic is this phrase, live at the altar. As I like looked around personally, example of what I was reading about, the closest thing that I would see come up to the kind of community that was described in these books, and as I saw in scripture, was at the altar. Uh, specifically, was that was an image of what our Trinity student-led Friday night worship nights look like, what we, we call respond, and was the kind of community that happens at the altar. And as I, I realized that there's this beautiful interactions that happen at the altar, but for somehow we've gotten to the point, or maybe it's always been this way in our Christian American Christian community that we leave those things at the altar. We like come and we experience like authentic community in a enclosed space that is okay there. And then we leave it there. And I'm not saying that we should like live our lives and the emotional high that often accompanies altar, but there's legitimate relationship and intimacy and vulnerability that takes place there that what that well, that's what was painted in my research for community was this kind of community and 
uh, I think the answer is take a look at the altar and what like what happens there and what relationships are like there. And now imagine a community, building a community that just looks like that and that live at the altar taken literally as we live our lives as a living sacrifice is a good picture descriptor of what, what authentic community looks like. And then just one like practical aspect to this uh, that I would give is that came up often is the idea of the table. One of my books referred to three distinct areas that community happens. One was uh, the hearth place. That's like the safe, warm, cozy place. One was the common place. That was like the crossways where you would like run into people. And the third was the table, the uh, which I think is the most biblical form of community that we see in terms of at least commonality of reference is eating together. It's It looks like New Testament church ate together every day, or at least the, for a while, that seems to be what's depicted. And what is more family-like, what is more community-driven than eating together. So as far as a practical thing to do to facilitate authentic community, I would say eat together. There's something beautiful, something I think even like spiritual that happens as we partake in the act of consuming food together as we we eat and there's inevitably things that come out of that. So a practical aspect of authentic community that I would encourage is simply the act of eating together. If you're looking at forming mentorship and building authentic community, eat together, not just like take someone out to eat, but invite them into your home and share meals with them, common meals. Not This should be an aspect of everyday life, not like uh, once in a while or uh, out there special thing, but eating together as believers should be common practice as family. Absolutely. And again, uh, you know, the rural church, whether only idealistically and hopefully in practice, should have a lot of room to make these principles a reality. When we talk about the intimate connections um, and just the common pace of life that everyone carries, I think it has so much application. I tend to agree with you uh, as a as a practitioner, as a rural pastor. Like I commented to someone just recently, there was a, a family that started coming to church, and part of their journey was the fact that my wife and I just invited them to our home and ate together. And I turned to my wife at one point and said, "I don't think I've encountered effective discipleship like this in a while." And it wasn't anything revolutionary. It was just eating. It was just eating at our house. And I was like, wow, what a what a what an awesome place to experience God. And and I love what you said about the altar, just experiencing that vulnerability and just that kind of connection. Because yeah, if we carry that kind of mutual caring of burdens and that honesty with one another into everyday life, like what I mean, we know how powerful the altar is. And what mm-hmm. if that could become, you know, the church's reality? That's so cool. Well, hey, I kind of want to ask you one more question. Uh, Put yourself in the shoes of a pastor who is seeking to disciple young people in the rural church. Obviously, you've talked about a lot of good principles, but if you could boil it down to like one guiding thing, let's say there's somebody who maybe even feels a little overwhelmed and says, hey, I'm not not sure how to proceed. What is your one piece of go-to advice that you could say, man, I think that would help them really connect in discipleship well, especially with that next generation? Yeah, the simplest answer I would say would be build relationship with them. Genuinely be with them, not just as a boss to an employee or as someone who has all the answers, but just as a friend or a brother or sister. Take them out to coffee and listen to them or to food. Take take them into your home and eat with them and listen to them and genuinely be open about your life and allow them to share their life with you, whatever that might be. The 
studies reflect that young people aren't really interested in fancy programs or new buildings, things like that. Young people care about relationships. They would much rather you sit down, you pay three bucks to sit down and have coffee with them than you pay $10,000 to build a new room for them. Their interest is in building relationship. Kinnaman and Matlock in their book, Faith for Exiles, referred to studies that they found that young people said that the church often feels too slick, too produced, too businesslike. They're not looking for something that's fancy or something that runs really smoothly, although those are all like good things and those can turn people away if things don't run smoothly. But what young people care about is building relationships. So just walk with them. Don't try to drag them along. Just walk alongside them. Let down your walls and even allow yourself to get hurt by them. Remember the model that Jesus laid down. Be incarnated. Come down to their level and walk with them. Then open yourself up to hurt from them. It's only by letting us crucify him that Jesus won our redemption. And that's it. There's a lot of like tips and tricks and things you can like incorporate in mentoring. Those are great. Seek those out. But ultimately, just walk with them and live a life worth replicating and be ready to be crucified to win their growth, their restoration, their redemption. I can show you it's it's worth it. Awesome. And and I, I love that word incarnation and and even the risk associated, because I, I think one of the things as pastors that can be hard as leaders, you know, in your job as RD is every single interaction is inherently risky. I mean, to yeah. open yourself up to somebody is risk. And yet Jesus was that ultimate harbinger of, of risk, of risk taking and saying, I'm going to go do something that most people will reject. And still yeah. it's worth it. And I just love that model. Man, Neil, you've given us a compelling vision for what discipleship can look like. And especially I think the rural church is just ripe uh, and ready for this kind of conversation and has so much potential to live it out. If uh, somebody wanted to get a hold of your thesis, is there an email or something you could give them that would help them do that? Yeah, absolutely. That would be n at gmail.com. That's O-R-A-V as in Victor, S-K-Y-N at gmail.com. Or if they want to look me up on Facebook, Neil Oravsky spelled the same way. Happily send them a message with or include my thesis and such. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today, Neil. Uh, you guys may not know, but Neil is one of my very close friends. And to hear him get to expound on a subject that he's passionate about, I think that's how the world goes around, is when Christians get to expound on the part of Jesus that they've really latched on to and the blessing it can be for the church. So once again, this is Rural Advancement. This is Joe Epley, your host. And tune in next week as we continue our discussions about doing God's work in small places. See you soon. Mm-hmm.